0: This Sunday is kind of a bomb-dropping Sunday, uh, you know, to drop, drop the bomb uh, about uh, what's going on here with the nursery and uh, being able to give to the nonprofits, um, but I've got a second one for you tonight, so I'm just lobbing them out of the air tonight. Uh, you know, we talked about digging, that we had these deeper roots, that we're growing these deeper roots, and that involves us as a church, and uh, that also involves me, uh, the, I too need... Deeper roots. Um, So uh, I'm going to be going on sabbatical uh, starting the day after Easter. That's April 5th uh, until the end of July. Uh, So don't worry. Um, uh, This has been planned for a long time. Uh, This is something that uh, happens for us as pastors every seven years or so and uh, it's been a little bit a little over eight years for me uh, when I take my sabbatical so uh, that was very much planned i didn't go on the seven-year mark because we had just become a church uh, we're in the middle of the pandemic and um, we just thought it was unwise so uh, we'll be i'll be doing it this spring and this summer uh, but a lot of times sabbaticals can happen for pastors and it's unplanned the pastor could be in a bad spot and uh, that's not what's happening here uh, this very much uh, is planned uh, i i am really tired um, I, I'd love being your pastor, but I am tired. playing the church um, has been a, a great joy to see God work in me and in your life. And um, but we see uh, in pastors that uh, it's a tough, it's a tough deal. You know, sabbaticals for pastors are different than sabbaticals uh, for academics. For academics, they usually get it for research. Sometimes that's what pastors do too, uh, but not for me. Uh, I'm taking this really for two reasons. Uh, the first one. Is that I choose to be a pastor in a way that my job and my life are really, really blurry. Um, I turned forty about a week ago, and um, I know I look older already. (laughs) And um, but what I was hoping on my birthday that would be just you know just just like high thirties, you know, just just warm enough to have uh, a few guys over on a Friday night. Uh, and I was thinking about talking to you guys about this, and I think my, what I was hoping for my 40th birthday perfectly encapsulates the way I do my life. And so, uh, here's who was invited. Uh, the first person was Justin, whose first and foremost, my friend. Uh, but here are the other roles uh, that I play in Justin's life. We are co-workers, I'm his pastor, and I happen to be his supervisor. It's a complicated relationship. Uh, that's just Justin. Uh, there's a couple of pastors from TCPC that were going to be there. Uh, I'm their friend, yes. Uh, but I also consider them to be co-workers. Uh, the other people who are going to be there are uh, people around my age who are here at the church who I happen to be their friend. And there? Pastor. So it's complicated, but really the lines get blurrier. I don't It's not just blurry with a few people. I want to be blurry with everybody. I don't want to just do uh, your wedding. And to baptize your kids or baptize you, I don't want to just do your funeral. I don't want to just preach to you. I don't want to just serve you communion. Uh, I, I want to have you in my home. And I want to be in your home. I don't want to share meals together. I want to know you, and I want you to know me. The line's really, really blurry. And if I just take a week off, two weeks off, uh, those threads uh, don't get uh, untangled very well. <laughs> It's going to take a while, and for me to really rest, I'm going to need this space to untangle it to really rest. Uh, the second reason is um, a little bit like I said earlier: that I'm tired. Uh, the emotional toll that it takes to be a pastor uh, it wears on me, and uh, I love it. It's really, it really is a great privilege, a great honor uh, to carry your burdens uh, with you, um, but they're heavy. I need a break. Um, you know, I need you to know this too. Uh, I read this this week that um, only ten percent of pastors who start as pastors retire as pastors. And uh, I, you know, you've heard, you've probably heard uh, statistics like that. I have uh, nearly my whole life, yet I do it anyways. And uh, I used to think it was because uh, most pastors weren't qualified, but I was wrong. It's because it's hard. Um, and I want to retire as a pastor. I don't want to do anything else with my life. Uh, But if that's going to be the case, I'm going to need some breaks. So uh, I know that raises a lot of questions. Uh, I'm going to hopefully answer some of those in the weeks to come, both here and uh, via email. I'm glad to talk with you offline about any of this. Uh, And I really appreciate uh, the elders aren't just allowing me to do this, but they're encouraging uh, me to do so. And uh, actually, our text tonight... (laughs) Is a pretty good, uh, pretty good text for making this announcement. And that's not why I did it. just seemed like the right week and leading up to it. So uh, let me pray as we look at this. My uh, Father, I pray for all of us, uh, Lord, that we would see that, um, Lord, I, help me see that I'm a Christian before I'm a pastor. Um, that I'm a Christian before I'm a father. I'm a Christian before I'm a um, husband. I'm a Christian before I'm a kentucky And uh, Lord, I pray that all of us. Uh, would see that same thing and, uh, Lord, help us get our own space uh, that we need uh, to recalibrate uh, to realize uh, who we are. And you is our uh, first and foremost identity. Well, we pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, last week, if you were with us uh, virtually or uh, here in person, um, you know, we tackled what might be one of those controversial texts. New Testament and it was perfect we talked about the relationship between men and women in the church it was Valentine's Day uh, it was our first Sunday here and uh, I don't know if I told you guys this last week but I remember when I thought I want to preach first Timothy and I started doing my study and then I thought dang it I don't want to preach first Timothy because that means I've got to preach uh, chapter 2 verses 8 to 15 but I had to do it anyway. So uh, last week, you know, it was a controversial text. It strikes out our modern sensibilities. It might uh, strike a very personal place of pain uh, for you. Uh, it's also just hard because it's a really tough text to interpret the cultural, theological components of it. They too, uh, like my life, are hard to untangle. And so today, uh, we're gonna look at a text that might at first blush look uh, less controversial uh, but I think for many of us, it's going to hit similar places. Um, as I was thinking about our text for this week, I was thinking about just my time in our denomination. I didn't grow up in the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. Uh, I grew up in a different denomination. And uh, when I got into the denomination, my questions were around predestination, infant baptism. I mean I thought they were the weirdest things I'd ever heard of or seen in my whole life. And uh, that has just been confirmed over and over and over again, uh, being in PCA churches. That a lot of people who come into them, they come in uh, not because they're looking for baptism or because they're looking for a PCA church or because they're looking for predestination. Uh, they uh, come in because they're attracted to uh, the, the biblical preaching. Sometimes they're attracted to uh, they're talking. They're they're attracted to their intellectual fancy being tickled. Uh, that happens in the PCA most PCA churches. And so. All this has been my experience until we started this church And now the issues aren't around predestination for baptism They tend to be around uh, how men and women relate in the church And also just this whole idea of church membership It just seems so weird I mean the church as an institution for some of you It's like nails on a chalkboard And I think that much of that is because those of you who have come into our church Not all of you, but some of you It, it seems so weird because you've never been in a church before It seems so weird because maybe you've not been in a church for a really long time. I also think it has to do with just where we are culturally, where we are in our city and who most of us spend a lot of our time with. And all that is understandable. And all that has been kind of the point. If we were just getting people who came from Baptists or non-denominational backgrounds who think that these kinds of things are weird—we're really just getting church people into our church. But it's really a sign that God is doing His work among us, that He's bringing skeptics into our midst, people who are unchurched or dechurched. So I praise God that there's different kinds of questions being asked. And so when we have this whole thing of membership, uh, we have a class called Foundations. A lot of you have been to it, and every time I do this super corny thing that I learned at Vacation Bible School as a kid. I said, I say, here's the church, here's the church, you know, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors and there's all the people. So then I did that, I, I did this equally corny thing and I say, what's the church? Is it the steeple, i.e. the institution, or is it the people, aka you? And most of the time, most people say, It's the people. And I'm like, yeah, you're half right. It's both of them. It's the institution and it's the people. And they just kind of laugh, you know. And I think that's what we'll see in our in our, in our our passage tonight. Uh, that even though your eyes might be rolling, it's like nails on a chalkboard. There's this uh, rolling of the eye when we talk about the church as an institution. But I think that will get reframed with our text tonight. So, uh, let's read that together, 1st Timothy, chapter 3. Uh, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not vile but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well Not double-tongued, not addicted to much want, not not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be first tested, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon. Well, I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, who is manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. The word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So straight away, uh, you pick up that the church is an institution because it calls for these two offices, elder and deacon. So it means that there's leaders. It means that there's authority, collective the side. But let's talk about what these leaders are like, as we saw. The first one, you'll see in our text, uh, verse 2, actually verse 1, overseer. Other translations, uh, it translates this word as bishop. And this word, uh, along with the Greek word for elder, they're used interchangeably in the New Testament. And so I'm going to use the word elder instead of overseer here on out. And when Presbyterians talk about elder, they're talking about kind of two different things. They're talking about a ruling elder who's a lay person who doesn't do much preaching. And they also talk about, Presbyterians talk about teaching elders or pastors, usually not lay, they're usually paid positions, and they do most of the teaching and originally these words when they were penned in the new testament overseer and elder weren't necessarily religious words they've kind of become that maybe for us that wasn't the case they were used in non-religious contexts and they were just they were just used to refer to any position where leadership was necessary so when you put all of these texts about elder and about overseer together you won't come up with much of a job description. In fact, it's kind of maddening for us as Americans to put that all together and not have much of a job description. But when you put all the texts together that are about overseer, that are about elder, what you will come up with is a really long list of what the character of these elders are to be like. Because here's the truth. The New Testament is much more concerned about who we are than what we do. So if you look at elder verses 2 to 7 you'll see that paul lists 14 requirements for being elder i've grouped them into seven different categories and i'm going to kind of go through them pretty quickly the first of those seven is reputation you have three that fall under that must be above reproach, respectable and be well thought of by outsiders be well thought of by outsiders i think this one's interesting but it makes sense. If you've been with us as we study studied 1 Timothy, you know that chapter 2, the first several verses, are about God's care for the world. That he wants, to, Because he cares for the world, he wants the church to care for the world. So if you're going to have leaders in the church, they can't just be people who want to govern what goes on inside the four walls of the church. They have to be people who have relationships with friends, families, neighbors, and coworkers who are outside the church. It can't be one way inside the church, another way outside the church. They have to see their ministry isn't just inside the church, but also outside the church. So reputation, that's part of what goes on with being an elder. The second part is about home life. You'll see two out of the 14 have something to do with home life. Uh, The first one says, husband of one wife. Literally, this means a one woman man. Uh, it doesn't mean that all pastors all elders have to be married i mean after all the lord jesus was single paul was single so being married is not so much what's in view here but what's in view is being healthy in their sexuality so if you have a married elder a married pastor it means that their spouse is the only love of their life it means adultery is off the table it means they don't flirt with other women when you think about sexuality for a single elder, a single pastor, it means that for them there's not a pattern of gratifying themselves sexually. It means that if they date, they only date those who are seeking to give themselves fully to Christ in his work of the world. And if we have, if we lower our standards for Christian leaders when it comes to their sexuality, we're the ones who will suffer as a church. The second thing it says about home life has to do with managing their household well. This word for manage is used uh, it's it talking about what they do in the home, but it's also used for what elders do in the church. You see it in 1 Timothy 5:7, you see it in 1 Thessalonians 5:12, you see it in Romans 12:8. And all this pastor, all the, all those passages have to do with this mix of tenderness and authority, of care and rule so this there is in the best sense of the word, supposed to be a fathering nature about elders about pastors all right so you got reputation you got home life the third one is a self mastery is what I'm calling it you don't see self mastery the text but it, it, it is it's a, it's a good umbrella word for the, for the following for the word sober minded for self-control for not a drunkard and also they am a lover of money. They have a mastery over their wallet. So we'll, we'll skip sober-minded and self-control, we'll go to a drunker. That elders and pastors, they've gotta be people who've developed ways to cope with the pain of life without needing to use substances to cover up for that pain. That elders and pastors, they're not only have to be drunk on wine, they're not, also not to be drunk on money. In the very same letter, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul talks about that greed can become a snare. That's a trap that you don't know you're walking along your life in regards to money and you step in it and it's gotten you. You didn't see it coming. But what we need, what the church needs, are leaders who say, I've got enough. And if they happen to make a lot, they're willing to cap their lifestyle. They're willing to live far below their income if they have a lot. They're willing to say I, I don't need to work 100 hours a week to make a lot of money i don't need a lot of luxury in my life if i make a lot of money i don't need to keep a bunch back to reinvest i don't need to keep it all to consume it all and live what is called the good life i want to give it away that's what we need in elders that's what we need in pastors and so i think a real practical sign is that our elders and pastors are willing to open up their finances because they know that greed can be a snare we're going to open them up, not before the whole church, not for everybody that they know, but to trusted godly people and ask them for feedback, because they simply just don't trust themselves. Those are the kind of leaders we need in the church.
1: We need elders who are
0: hospitable. And back in the New Testament, there weren't buildings. We couldn't gather in public. It was illegal. And so the elders became the hosts. That church happened in people's homes. And that's why neighborhood groups are such a big part of who we are as a church, that this isn't All we do as a church is come together for Sunday worship. And so our leaders they are called to extend hospitality as a big part of the ministry. The elders, pastors, the next one is to be able to teach. And this is what differentiates them from the deacon that we'll look at here in a second. There's a lot of crossover. The character is pretty much the same, but there is this differentiation of Teaching. Next one is gentle. It says not violent, but gentle. It says not quarrelsome. This is no surprise. We saw in 1 Timothy chapter two, verse eight, just last week. We saw that all the men in the church they were angry and quarrelsome. So of course, when it comes to elders, when it comes to pastors, that they're not to be angry, quarrelsome, but gentle. All right. So those are our elders. Those are our pastors. And then we get to verses eight to eight and following. We get to deacon. And deacon, uh, is all, the same word that's used for deacon is also used for servant. And so sometimes that word that can be translated servant can be translated deacon, same thing. So let me just illustrate this for you in two different texts. One is Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 43, Jesus says, familiar text, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever be great among you must be your servant. But you could also say it must be your deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 22, Jesus again is talking. He says, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who deacons? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who deacons. So if you want to know what it means to serve, look at deacons. And you see their qualifications there. Verse 8, there's this self master component again. It to be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. The second thing is that they're to be orthodox in their beliefs. So even though they don't teach, Doctrine is still important, That they've got to have this conviction, this theological component of who they are as leaders must be there. Because they're to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, verse 9. They too, they're supposed to be spiritually mature, just like the elders not to be a recent convert. The deacon is to be tested and proven. And the deacon too, verses 11-12, talk about the home life. So when you put those two lists together, if I had a PowerPoint, I put those seven things up there for the elder pastor, I put the four things up there for the deacon, and you would say, yeah, that looks like kind of normal Christianity, Marsh. It's Pretty pedestrian. Sounds like a low bar. And they are terribly normal, but they're rarer than you think. They're just not givens. That's not the way we usually think. That's not the way that I usually think. When we usually think about potential pastors or elders or deacons, we use words like charisma. We look like words like dedication. We look about things like being nice. And we can add all that up and just say, therefore, they must love Jesus. It looks like they have the blessed life. Looks like they're smart. They might make good money. Their family looks on the up and up. Their job's got leadership responsibilities. Therefore, they must be godly. But that's not necessarily the case. In fact, I would say that you'd have to spend a lot of time over a long period to be able to check folks out in this way. So we've got to be slower to come to conclusions about people's character. In fact, uh, you just received, uh, like I mentioned earlier, the, an elder and the three deacons who are being brought forth for you to vote on. And uh, it would have been really tempting and honestly pretty easy just to do all the doctrinal stuff. Just say, hey, read all this stuff about what it means to be a good Presbyterian. Because, hey, look here, you know, deacons are supposed to hold the mission of faith with good conscience, And look here, the elders are supposed to be able to teach. Therefore, this doctrinal stuff is important. That stuff you can do in your sleep. It's just have a bunch of stuff. The hard part's the character part, and that's what we spent a lot of the last four months on. And those are being put forth, been trained in those areas. And usually, when people get nominated and they get put forth for office, the first thing they ask me is like, "Hey, what's the time commitment in here? Give me the job description." And I always tell them that what's most important. It's their own sanctification, their own growth and grace, as well as their marriage or their singleness. That what they have to offer our church is not their time, it's not their talents, it's their sanctification, it's their marriage, it's their singleness. And I think by the end of the four months they finally believe me. It's a pretty invasive process that we've been through. Because I know the character doesn't come quickly or naturally to me. Because I'm a sinner. I know that these things have to be cultivated in my life and in yours. But let me be clear, what we don't need are leaders who think they're perfect. Because none of us can do perfection. We're all sinners. But we we need leaders who are committed to their growth. We need leaders who realize that growth is just like ours. That it's slow that it's hard and sometimes it's inconsistent. And even if that's true, even if we have leaders who have not arrived, we've got to hold these standards of our leaders they are of utmost importance because as our leaders go, so will our church. What our church's leadership is in a microcosm is what our church will become in a macrocosm. That's why Paul writes what he did in verse 15. Verse 15 is the purpose statement for the whole letter. Verse 15, he says that he's written this letter so that you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And you know where we've been in chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 2, we know that God wants us to be a, a church that's about prayer, that's about mission. It's got to be a church that knows it doesn't exist just for itself. It has to have an outward goal. In the second half of chapter 2, what we saw is is how men and women are to relate to one another. So what's going to ensure that this mission happens? First half of chapter 2. What's going to make sure that the genders don't gobble one another up, that they're not at war with one another? The leaders. The leaders are going to have to be the ones. But the only way that you can become this kind of leader is not just by saying, I'm going to have a really good New Year's resolution. I'm going to get some really good accountability partners. People are going to hold me to a really high standard. What you need are leaders that get verse 16, what's going on here. Verse 16 is a confession. It is a doctrinal statement. But it's a hymn. It's a song. And here goes Paul again. He, He breaks out into a song spontaneously. And he starts it all at the beginning. He starts it with... The incarnation, that Jesus, that God came in the flesh, doesn't care about you. And that He was vindicated, that He wasn't defeated by the cross, He wasn't ultimately shamed at the cross, but He rose in honor, He rose in victory. That a new day is coming. And that's what we're singing about. And then He says that He's been seen by angels, and, and Jesus was seen by angels at several points, but especially the resurrection and then the ascension in Acts chapter 1. And it's not just spiritual beings who have seen Jesus, it's all the nations. That all the nations have experienced Jesus through the proclamation of of the word and and miracle of miracles. Some people actually believe in him. And the day day is coming when he's going to come again in glory. And brothers and sisters, that's worth singing about. And leaders who don't sing aren't above reproach. Leaders who don't sing soothe their pain with sex and money. Leaders who don't sing will not be faithful and tender lead their families. Leaders who sing, though. They're the leaders that you need and they're the leaders that I need, too. And if God is so kind to give us these kind of leaders, they're going to be with us when we struggle. If God is so kind to give us these kind of leaders, they're going to correct us when we rebel. If God is so kind to give us these kind of leaders, they're going to point us to Jesus in our pain. Because, brothers and sisters, this is what gospel leaders do. They don't see their role as bureaucratic, or as policy makers, or as decision makers, or just the people who get to see behind the curtain, see how the sausage is made in the church. These kind of leaders, they know that the church is an institution, but they also know that the church is a family. And the only reason the institutional pieces are there is so that they can be leveraged to maintain what Paul calls in verse 15, that household of God, the family of faith, where relationships of love and trust are primary. See, after all, that's what we all want. We know instinctively that this whole thing is really about family. We all know that we're really just brothers and sisters who've been adopted through Jesus by God our Father. We know we're going to spend eternity together and we want to taste that now, but it's going to take leaders whose hearts leap with joy at the very name of Jesus to get us there. I know I've gone long, but um, I've got to give you a few applications here at the end. Uh, the first one is commit to the church serve the vision of our church reach the skeptic do racial reconciliation serve the poor do it with your time and your money the second thing i'd say is about commit to the church is make sunday worship priority even if it's online for the time being because we all need to be reminded of christ's great love for us and what he's called us to do as a church second thing application is I would say uh, that maybe uh, during COVID, you may have able to do a re- lot of reevaluation in your life. It's a good thing. And maybe what you've noticed is that our church, hoped it served its purpose for a time, served its purpose for for first season, but maybe what you've noticed is that it's time to take a step away. It might be something about the vision of our church. It just doesn't stir you. Or maybe you've noticed needs in your life that are just going to be unmet. That's all fine and good. Our church isn't, uh, isn't, isn't isn't the only church uh, with people who care about the gospel in it. It's important that all of us are able to fit in the church that we're called to. And to be able to be out under the leaders that we respect. Third thing I'd say is maybe you need to reconcile with the church or a church. I, this is a really tough one. A lot of us have been hurt by the church, maybe even this one. I also said many of us have hurt the church. And maybe it's time for you to pursue reconciliation. And that's likely going to mean that you're going to have to go to someone and you're going to have to forgive that person who's wronged you. But you're also going to have to repent of what you've contributed to the fracture in that relationship with that church see usually what we do is we just play the victim or the villain we either blame someone else for 100% of the problem in a relationship or with the church or we take on 100% of the problem and we become the villain it just seems easier that way it's just a little cleaner but we need both That both parties are going to have to repent and both parties are going to have to forgive I read this this week by a counselor named Chuck DeGroote. He said, the good and the bad in us need to befriend one another. We are never either one or the other, but always a mysterious mixture of both. If I naively live unaware of my shadow side, I live disconnected from a vast storehouse of riches that can be discovered only when I befriend my shame, my loneliness, my disappointments, my addictive habits, my secret resent, secret resentments, and my hidden rage. So I'm not sure what it's going to mean for you to reconcile with the church. But let's heal together. The fourth thing, last thing, I swear I'm almost done. As I'd say, aspire to office. The very first thing in, the, in this text says this is a beautiful thing to aspire to be a leader in the church i know what we talked about last week about men and women in the church but the way that our church is structured here there are these ordained offices but a huge part of life in our church are neighbor groups but our church really has gotten where it has gotten just, certainly not of being just, but in many ways the church has gotten where it has gotten because of the dedication and prayer tenderness in the way our neighbor group leaders have embodied all these characteristics. So if you desire to have this kind of influence, Paul says it's a beautiful thing. That all starts with being led. So if you want to lead in ministry, you want to lead in our church, you want to be a neighbor group leader, you want to serve as an officer, tell someone. You say, hey, I don't know when this is going to happen again, but I want to sit under you. I want to learn from you. I want you to help me develop my character under the grace of God. So, in closing, may God mature us into a people that are committed to our own growth and committed to being led and committed to our community so that we can all sing to Jesus.